So we are uh, working on finishing up our study of Habits of Grace. Got a few more weeks here as we kind of wrap everything up. Uh, this chapter is on the subject of the dollar. And so as you recall, last week we talked about the fact that the Great Commission, how we use our time, how we use our money, are not necessarily um, avenues of grace in themselves in the same way that God's Word, prayer, and fellowship with God's people are, but they are very closely related. They support those other things, they flow out of those other things, and so it is helpful and appropriate for us to consider these ideas in connection with those main categories we've been looking at of Word, prayer, and fellowship. And so we come here to chapter 20, and um, just want to sort of set the background to this. The focus here is not on tithing. So there are discussions in various churches about the idea of tithing. When I was talking with my eighth graders, um, I said something about the New Testament doesn't command us to tithe, and some of them looked like I'd grown a couple of extra heads or something. But I said this, the New Testament does command us to give, to give to the church, to give to fellow members who are in need, to give more broadly and help others. Uh, to sacrifice, to see all of the things that belong to us as things God has given us oversight of for a period of time while we're alive. And so uh, that's sort of the backdrop of this chapter. It's not designed to guilt you into giving more money to the church. It's designed to help us have a broad perspective on how the ways that we use our money ties into our attitude toward word, prayer, fellowship, supporting the Great Commission, seeing what God's doing in and through the church. So it says here at the beginning, for the Christian, the issue is not just that we give, but how. God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And giving gladly rests on the great why of Christian generosity, that Christ himself, our Savior, Lord, and greatest treasure, demonstrated the ultimate in generosity and coming to buy us back. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. If Jesus is in us, then increasingly such an open-handed tendency will be in us as well. One of the effects of the gospel going deeper in our souls is it frees our fingers to loosen the grass, their grasp on our goods. Generosity is one of the great evidences of truly being a Christian. Not only is it Jesus himself who speaks most often and warns us more severely about the danger of greed, but he is also the one who so strongly appeals to our joy and says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So, why is an unwillingness to give, uh, why is it incompatible with someone who follows God? What is the relationship between greed and idolatry? Um, why should we have an attitude of being willing to give and to share in the context of the church? What are some of the things that come to mind when I ask those questions? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Okay, good, good. Obviously, we can't save anybody, but Christ, if Christ gave all of this for us, certainly we can follow his example to the degree that we are able to do so. What else? What are some other ideas? What's the relationship between greed and idolatry? Okay. Right. Sure. And this is important because in our society today, 
the love of things is held up as a virtue to be pursued, right? So it's a good thing if you love stuff. It's a good thing to want stuff. Um, without any disrespect to anybody involved in marketing, advertising, etc., the, the, the core idea is creating a desire for something. Now, if it's legitimately a good something, then it may not be a bad thing to try to sell that to someone else, but when it, if it becomes an all-consuming desire that that person pursues to obtain that thing, then that greed, that, that greed is idolatry, right? And um, we tend not to think of it in those sorts of terms. We're like, yeah, society around us is materialistic, and, and we like stuff, and yeah, we probably like stuff a little bit too much, but we don't want to come right out and be like, this is sin, right? Because it's normal. It's normal to want this sort of house and, and, and all of these sorts of things, conveniences, whatever else, and their needs, right? That's, that's the attitude that we have. What do we actually need? Right, ultimately. But even in terms of our physical lives, what, what, do we, what are our basic needs? Food, shelter. Paul technically said food and clothing with these will be content, so he didn't necessarily even say a house per se, but um, is it possible to be content with less than even those basic necessities? Think about Paul and Philippians. Yeah. I've been in want, and I've had blessing, abundance, and in both circumstances, I can honor God, and, and, and God can be pleased with me. And so, those sorts of thoughts are very um, contrary to what we've been used to. I was reading something the other day, and they were trying to make a political point, but it makes a valid spiritual point as well, which is the idea that, that people my age and younger sort of have this idea of we don't have everything that we deserve and we deserve everything that we have and in con set that in contrast both historically and societally with my grandmother's generation she grew up in the Great Depression and some of the aftermath of that of the, of the Depression and so there is just a different mindset of what basic necessities actually are. So in terms of um, so in terms of furniture, right? There was this idea at one point that you would save, and maybe when you were middle aged, you'd buy really nice furniture after you'd gotten by with hand me downs and so forth. Um, for us, it's a little bit tricky because you can buy IKEA and have something that's moderately nice, but not really an heirloom piece, right? Um, but even so, there's some for some people. There's this mindset: okay, we just got married, we just finished up school, we should have right out the gate everything that our parents had after 30 years of working, and that's just not a realistic or sustainable approach to things. And more importantly, if we take that attitude and have a desire for things, that's then going to skew a whole bunch of other things in our lives, right? Because how are we going to pay for that? Um, how are we going to prioritize things in order to make that happen? You know, all those sorts of things. So, he talks about five truths about money. First of all, money is a tool. Uh, someone want to turn 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, read that for us, please? 
then maybe someone else can do Hebrews 13, 5. Okay, you got 1 Timothy, Margaret, or you doing Hebrews? Okay, someone want to do Hebrews 13, 5? Kelly? Okay, we'll do those two for now. So, is having money in and of itself evil? No. What is, what is he condemning? Yeah, greed, love of money, idolatry. Think about what Jesus said. You can't serve God and money. Right. Yeah. There's the joke that you don't hear. You don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul to the gravesite, right? Um, and if you do, then they're wasting their money, right? Because once we're gone, all of the physical possessions we have are not available. I think I've said this before to you all, but if you want a good perspective on the value of the things that you've accumulated, go to an estate sale and see them being sold for 50 cents apiece. And then hopefully it helps us realize, you know what, I shouldn't care so much about this because no one else cares about it. Um, so, yeah, so money is not evil, but loving money is evil. Loving money and greed, in what way is that idolatry? Are we, when we say, I love money, are we actually loving money for itself or are we loving it for something else, usually? Right. What we can do with money. We don't actually like pull a dollar bill out of our wallet and be like, I really love this dollar bill. But the fact that I can get something with it, that, that's the thing that's attractive to us. So if money is instead a tool that ought to be used by us, we ought not to be ruled by it. Turn over to Matthew uh, 22. So Matthew 22 is this idea of the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. And they say, should we pay Caesar the tax? Jesus said, whose likeness is on it? They said in verse 21, Caesar's. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So one of the functions of money is to fulfill obligations. Romans 13 talks about the obligation to pay taxes to the government. So that's one of the things that we're supposed to do. Turn back a few pages to Matthew 17. And then verse 27. This was a tax, as I recall, that would have been more of a local tax. And so uh, there was this question of whether Jesus was going to pay that one as well. And he tells Peter, go catch the fish. And he catches the fish, he finds a shekel, and he pays the tax with the shekel that's found in the fish. Um, and then over in Luke 16.
Luke 16 and verse 9. He says, I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Which sounds kind of like a sneaky thing that's being recommended to us here. But in the context, it seems to be this idea of if you are faithful even with money that has use only for a short period of time, then that is connected with the sort of following God that shows that you're worthy to be accepted into God's kingdom. It's not, if you're really smart with investing your money, you get to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, money is a tool. Use it wisely. When you use it wisely, it reflects the sort of wise stewardship that is acceptable to God of, of those who follow him. This was a, a statement that I, I thought about and I thought I wanted to highlight. Tools are made to be used. Holding on to money will not satisfy our souls or meet the needs of others. How many of you have um, bought a car that didn't have a lot of scratches on it and then you got the first like big scratch on it? How many of you have bought a, this is more a guy thing I think, um, how many of you have bought a tool and you forgot to bring it in and it got rain on a little bit and then it's got a little bit of a coat of rust on it and it doesn't, even if you polish it up, it doesn't look quite as nice as it did before you left it outside. So, here's the thing though. As much as we might like to imagine that cars are museum pieces that everyone loves and cherishes as much as we do, that tools are meant to be hung and displayed for all to marvel at their shininess. A hammer's a hammer. You use it to pound on stuff. It doesn't have to be pretty, right? A car's a car. You live in Michigan, it's got 15 years tops, 20 maybe if you push it, and the whole thing, what's that? Well, 25. If you're, if you're good at it, you can make it last longer than that. But sooner or later, rust catches up with it, or as Jesus said, moths come in, thieves break in and steal. So money is a tool, like a hammer, like a car, like a whatever. It does no good to you and anybody else if it's always and only just sitting over here doing nothing. And we say, well, but, but it's accumulating. Well, even if it's accumulating... If you don't use it to serve God and to serve others and to meet the needs that it needs to meet, it's like buying a hammer you're never going to use to pound nails. What, why'd you get it? You know. So that statement, money is, tools are meant to be used. Holding on to money will not satisfy our souls or meet the needs of others. It's a good reminder because we seem to think sometimes hanging on to something will make us happy. And it doesn't, you know? Then secondly, how we use money reveals our hearts. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Someone read for us verses 19 to 21. Please, Matthew six nineteen to twenty one. Evan, go ahead. 
Okay. Uh, Bob, do you want to read 25 and 26? For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than that? So what does money show about our hearts and our attitude toward God? Yeah. And we'll talk more as we go through here that there are, there are reasonable necessities to spend money on, but one of the checks for us to evaluate our commitment to God is potentially to look through our bank records and credit card statements and see what the use of money is showing about what our priorities are. Um, so uh, we'll skip Philippians 4.19 for sake of time. But we will, uh, let's jump over to Philippians 2, 4, though. Someone read Philippians 2, 4 for us. Okay, good. And then... Um, I'll read for you 2 Timothy 3.2. It says, Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and so on, when the last days difficult times come. So, how does giving money away show love? How does hanging on to it show an ungodly attitude? Okay. Yeah, there's a, there's a selfishness that lurks within our hearts that is unwilling to share what we have. And understanding the gospel and seeing what God has done for us helps correct that. He says, Generosity is an occasion to look past the small joys of self-oriented spending and pursue the greater pleasures of spending on others. And so a good instinct to develop on the threshold of significant purchases is to ask what this expenditure reveals about our heart. What desire am I trying to fulfill? Is this for private comfort or gospel advance or expressing love to a friend or family member? Depending on a variety of factors, we're going to lean toward one extreme or the other. There's the person that's so generous that they're not even paying their own bills because they've given all their money away to help other people and they haven't planned at all about some things that are coming up later. Then on the other hand, you have the person that's so unwilling to give 
that, or at least give to others, that all of their things are focused on what can benefit me, right? Uh, when he says small joys of self-oriented spending, what would be some examples of that? So here's an example. When I was in seminary, occasionally I would be out driving around and think, you know what, I'm kind of hungry. I could pop in a Taco Bell and I could grab a quesadilla. Did that make me feel good for a little bit? Yeah. But then I felt guilty because I'm like, but I didn't buy Kelly cheesy nachos, so that was kind of self, right? I didn't take any home. And then I got to thinking, and I probably could have spent that two bucks a better way, you know, because it's not like we don't have food at home. So that'd be an example of a small joy of self-oriented spending. And your example might be very much different. And in case you're wondering, I don't swing by Taco Bell anymore. <laughs> Having the stomach flu four times in a row after eating there was not worth it. So aside from the stewardship issues. But... Whatever your example is of self-oriented spending, this question, why am I doing this when we about, are about to spend a good amount of money, is an important for, thing for us to think about. Because um, the Taco Bell thing, yeah, something to think about. But we're talking two, three bucks. It's not the end of the world unless it's something that's happening all the time. Something really big that we're about to spend a lot of money on we ought to put a little bit more thought in. Why am I doing this house, this car, this piece of furniture, whatever else? Um, and uh, so it's, it's important to think through those questions. Any other thoughts on this one before we move on to the next one? This idea of money revealing our hearts. Greta. Right. So I don't think that it's un. I think you ought to plan for retirement. Uh, I think there's wisdom in. Um, there's wisdom in preparing for the future. I guess the difference would be. Um, a lot of it comes down to our attitude in what we're doing. Um, the the so let me give you an example. My grandfather was um, worked for several different churches, and in a number of those churches what he was making money-wise was not really enough to pay their bills and set aside a lot for retirement. And so he had a concern for my grandma when he died, who's going to take care of her? And so he had a conversation with the church as he was getting up in years and said, I've, I've served you guys faithfully and you know I'm not always going to be here, but the one thing I would ask is that you look after my wife. Uh, I'm not asking you to give me a certain amount of money, but just keep an eye on her and make sure. So, can God work things out that kind of way? Yes. Um, but looking at the example of the ant in Proverbs, 
if instead of like the ant in Proverbs who stores up food in the summertime when there's opportunity to work, if we spend everything that comes in when we're young and then we get to be older and we don't have the same opportunities to work or the strength to work or whatever else, then I think it's one of those things of uh, that would be foolish of us to do. Well, let's say you get to a point where you're 50 or 60 and you haven't saved anything at all. We can't undo the past. We can't fix everything we should or shouldn't have done at whatever point earlier in time. So like with any other sinful or foolish choice that we've made, God doesn't just say, well, you messed up. Live with it. There is hope and there is help even in those circumstances. But I think there's nothing wrong with planning for the future as long as that is not our all-consuming desire. As long as we recognize, think about what happened, you know, five, ten years ago when everything collapsed economically. There were people that were right on the brink of retirement at that point. That money vanished. So we can plan, but God's plan supersedes ours. We can be in a position where we can't set aside because of whatever reasons, and God can still take care of us. But I think the general principle would be plan, but not plan so that you can be selfish about it, but plan so that you have opportunity to serve God more. So, Which kind of ties into the next one here. Sacrifice varies from person to person. Hoarding and giving aren't the only options. For most of us, the vast majority of our spending goes to meet our own needs and the needs of our families. That kind of spending is inevitable and necessary. It is a good thing. God provides us with income for those purposes, and to many of us, He gives resources beyond our needs and enables us to join Him in the joy of giving to others. This raises the question of how much is enough for our needs. He said, it's difficult and probably unwise to prescribe particulars here, but we can create some helpful categories and describe errors to avoid, like being enslaved to our stuff. He also talks about this idea of a fully human life. And this is, of all the five points that he makes, this one I think has the least scriptural support, so it's the one I would be the most tentative on. He quotes something from Augustine. And... Uh, Augustine said something along these lines, The needs of this life, not what is just necessary for bare subsistence, but also what is necessary for living a life becoming or appropriate to human beings. The point is not to live on crust of bread with bare walls and threadbare clothes. clothes. The point is that a fully human life is lived in a way free from being enslaved to our stuff. Our possessions are meant to serve our needs and our humanness rather than our lives being centered around service to our possessions and our desires for them. And while I would probably agree to some extent in principle with that, are there Bible passages that would inform us more clearly about what the guidelines are for needs, sacrifice, wants, all those sorts of things? Because that's really the reason we should do it, not because Augustine or any other famous person said it, you know? How do we know what is enough? How do we know what is appropriate sacrifice? Huh? Obviously, working through what I do, I would say you never save a dollar. Okay. But ultimately, it will show by your heart, by your actions. You know, I've had 
look at their budget, they don't give anything. I mean, less than 1%, but then they've got, you know, a million dollars. So, uh, to me, that's, you know, that's an evidence of where their heart is. But then, you know, all the clients has $200,000 that is faithfully giving 15%. Yeah. So, I don't say it's a percentage or it's a, a specific dollar amount, but you see it in their hearts. I think it is wise to plan for the future, but that's where, you know, having that budget <coughs> and being disciplined, being willing to say, you know, I'll put off uh, spending today so that I have something tomorrow, not just for myself, but for others. So it's, I think it all comes out of our desire to serve God and others. Okay, good. Any other thoughts? one of those subjects that we're afraid to say things on because we want to be thought well of. But, but if we're honest, this is a struggle that we have, you know. Do I feel guilty because I bought a new pair of shoes? Do I, uh, you know, so, and, and when we become, and you know, when we're little kids, we're more upfront about this sort of thing, right? Like, we have certain, it goes back and forth. Sometimes we have certain perceptions of other people based on how they dress, what they do, you know, whatever. This kid had this birthday party. I just did this thing. Um, this person go to go on this trip for spring break. We just, you know, went to McDonald's, you know, whatever. Um, kids make those kind of comparisons. As adults, as we become aware of the difference in our daily activities, routines, or so forth, compared to other people, those things can make us uncomfortable or feel guilty, right? Like, if this person went out to eat three times this week, and I feel like I should realistically only afford to go out to eat once this month, or once these every three months, there's a disparity there. They're, they don't match up. They're not equal. So, part of this question is, do I need to feel guilty that what I'm doing is different from what someone else is doing? Do I need to say everyone's needs are exactly the same? Um, when, uh, when they continue down through here, let me read this quote because I think it's helpful. There wasn't room to include it on the page. But God made us for rhythms and cadences, for feasting and fasting, for noise and crowds and silence and solitude. There is some help even in if minimal, in identifying and naming the extremes of sustained opulence or excess and austerity or like the bare minimum. We need a place for both financial feasting and fasting. We should abhor the so-called prosperity gospel and not be snookered by stinginess masquerading as Christian stewardship and beware that running up large credit debt, card debt is likely giving beyond our means. While discerning precisely what's too little or too much from person to person is no easy task. John Piper wisely observes, the impossibility of drawing a line between night and day doesn't mean you can't know it's midnight. A final thing to note in terms of standard is the test of sacrifice. Do you ever abstain from something you'd otherwise think of as the needs of life in order to give to others. Nothing shows our hearts like sacrifice when we're willing to give not only from our excess, 
but to embrace some personal loss or disadvantage for the sake of showing generosity toward others, we say loudly and clearly, even if only to our own souls, we have a greater love than ourselves and our comforts. Some important things, and again, I don't have chapter and verse to show you, but I think if we sat down and thought about it, some of those things are tied to biblical principles for sure. The idea that you're not going to be in the same circumstance at every point in life, that's basically what Paul said in Philippians. Sometimes I had more than I needed, sometimes I had less than what I needed, right? But I could still be content. So that's, I think, a biblical principle. The idea that I would be willing to give up something to help someone else. For the Corinthians, it doesn't seem like when Paul talks to them in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that they were hurting really badly for money. But the Macedonians, whose example Paul uses to spur on the Corinthians, he says, out of their deep poverty, they gave. So, there's a case to be made for, I don't do something that I could do in order to do something good for someone else. Or, um, I am giving... Uh, God has blessed me out of abundance, and so I'm going to share some of that with someone else. And so there's, we're in different points at different points in life, different places at different points in life, and again, it comes down to what's our heart attitude. Is our heart attitude a willingness to serve God and others, and factoring that into all the decisions that we make, or is it only, I want to fill in the blank, and I need fill in the blank, particularly when the I wants and the I needs are driven by the greed that our culture promotes and sees as normal. And so that's where the hard attitude filters down to the practical actions. If I'm convinced I need something because that's what people around me say who don't know God, and then I'm like, I'm going to need it, so I'm going to do these things to get it, never mind this fellow Christian over here who has other needs, that's where it's gone wrong, is for way back here, the lie that we've believed that I need whatever, or the idea that I will only be happy or content with, fill in the blank. And so we have to fix some of the thoughts here, we have to fix some of the actions here, and we have to broaden our horizons and our awareness of what's actually going on in the lives of fellow Christians around us. And that's when Paul says something like, don't look only on your own needs, but also on the needs of others then we have that awareness and we can help to meet those needs. So, going to the next one for sake of time. Generosity is a means of grace. While the New Testament does not promise physical rewards in this lifetime for our giving, it does teach that generosity is a means of grace for our souls and God stands ready to bless those who give from faith. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, verse 35 and the promise is even stronger in 2 Corinthians 9. So he says in the book this statement, In faith, our giving to meet others' needs becomes an occasion for more divine grace to flood our souls. Would you agree with that statement? Why or why not? Okay. Okay. Good. What else? How, how does God's grace work out in this? Yes.
Yeah. So one of the things that you said I think is important to think about. This idea that how will I have what I need six months from now, right? there is an attitude that I think is sort of natural to us, and by natural I mean what we automatically think, not that it's, not that it's right. If I want what, if, if, if I plan to have what I'm going to need six months from now, I've got to consider all the what-ifs. You know, financial advisor might recommend having a month to three months of income. I'm going to go for six you know, whatever, and, 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 and that can sort of snowball to the point where we say, anything that ever comes in, I'm either going to do what I want with it, because it makes me happy for a little while, or I'm going to hang on to it in case I need it later on. But to your point, Retta, the times, just by way of personal observation, the times in my life when I have not been faithfully giving to God or looking for opportunities to meet the needs of others, I have experienced less coming in in unexpected ways. The times when I've been willing to say, you know what, um, family member I know has this bill coming up, I'm going to see if I can help him out with that, or you know what, maybe I could give a little bit more to the church right now, or you know, whatever else it might be. I'm not saying this is a promise from God. I'm just saying by way of observation, God has sometimes sent money in unexpected ways to make up the gap, which I think is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 9, which is this. If you are generous with what God has given to you, God will often give you more to be generous with. That's what it says, basically, in 2 Corinthians 9. If you hang on too tightly to what you have and are unwilling to share and see it as only for you 
and have this sort of attitude of preservation, like with the hammer and with the car and with the nice outfit and whatever else, whatever it might be, then God is, tends not to bless us as much with more because it's like, why does that person need more? They're hanging on to it. They're unwilling to share. And so um, it's just it's something that we need to keep wrestling with. The last point, God is the most cheerful giver. It is easy to feel good about our giving compared to people around us. If we look at somebody and we're like, yeah, well, that person gave this amount, but I'm going to give this amount more, I can feel pretty good about myself. But when I compare what I give to what God has given us in Christ, I'm never going to live up to that standard. And the goal is not to reach that standard because we can't, but rather not to be satisfied because we do something a little better, a little differently than someone else. So, there's a bunch of passages there with regard to that. How does remembering that anything that we have belongs to God change our attitude toward what we have? How does that change our attitude toward what we have? It's God's. He's loaned it to me for a little while. Bob? I guess I would say if it doesn't change our attitude, it reveals something very important about our lives. Sure. Yeah. And so this is where this idea of like this idea of like uh, political affiliation and economics and whatever sort of spills into our Christianity. There's a part of us that might say, "Well, you know, I earned this money, so it's mine. So I'm not going to give it to that guy over there who didn't earn it." But that's not really a biblical attitude, is it? Yes, we should promote people being responsible. Yes, we should encourage people to work hard. The Bible has a lot to say about those things. But the Bible also has a lot to say about generosity and a recognition that what you have is kind of like when you pick up a handful of sand at the beach and it runs through your fingers. It's running out. It's going to be gone. What are you going to do with it while it's in your hand for that brief little while? And that's the thing that we have to come to terms with in God's sight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these ideas. Um, certainly some of them are very closely tied to biblical principles. Some of them may be more extended applications that we need to decide what you would have us to do with in our own circumstances. Lord, help us not to fall into the errors of being tempted to steal because we feel like you're not providing our needs, being tempted to forget you because we think that we have everything and we don't need to depend on you. Help us to walk that delicate balance of contentment with what we have, recognition that, that what we have changes over the course of life, uh, willingness to be generous and kind and use the things you've given us to further your purposes and not just our temporary fleeting goals. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.